Hello and welcome to the Future of Learning podcast. I'm Lloyd Dean, I'm your host and all of the questions today are from the listeners and the audience. So thank you to everyone. The guest we have is Professor David Chandros. He is an expert on gamification. So we explore things like Fortnite, German board games and brain structures amongst a host of other things. I had so much fun speaking with David on this. He's a really great guy. Hope you guys enjoy the show. Instagram. You can find him at BenKirk8. And ben quest- Ben's question is this. What is gamification for anyone who does not know anything about it? Um, gamification is the use of game elements uh, for non-entertainment purposes. Could you give us an example? <coughs> well, gamification, for example, begins with very simple concepts such as point badge leaderboard, PBL, where every activity you do, you get points for, which is a kind of an achievement benchmarking. So, for example, I'm about to learn about um, uh, biology of insects. So I've learned about what a moth is, and I know something about the biology of moths. So you get 10 points for that. Now we learn about spiders. Now you get 20 points for learning about spiders. So once you've learned about moths and spiders, you now know a couple of bugs. You now get a badge. You're a bug knowledge lover level one. And then there might be a leaderboard, that's the L end of it, where you can see how other people. So in a one-hour class, you might all be studying bugs, but certain people at the end of the class will have learned more than others. So then that creates a leaderboard. So that's a very simple form of a gamification. And expand from that point to uh, really um, taking on the best elements of video games and what we call German-style board games using uh, a strategy. German-style board games. Yes, these uh, came in very big in about the year 2000. Um, these are board games that were mostly originated in Germany, and thus they became cut. A great designer in that league, one of the Einsteins of the field, is Reiner Nijia, a mathematician who produces award-winning games. So these are all games that are generally court, a border card games. They never have any violence in them. They might be about... Um, developing an artist or building a civilization or uh, they're usually um, discovering gems in Tikal or Java. And um, they generally can be played and the rules can be learned in about five minutes. They generally take about 45 minutes to play and they all involve very interesting strategic tricks. There's always uh, some kind of strategic element in it, which is kind of addicting. So this is how I built my first games um, and I still build my games using those models. So, the, yeah, sorry. No, it's um, I was just going to say, so one of the, I suppose, common myths is that gamification is just technology. Absolutely. Uh, very little technology is used for most gamification right now. Um, and and it's, uh, it's important to know that because uh, you can build card and board games very quickly and you can change them. You can test them out with learners, change them, and the next thing you know, your game, whereas if you're building technology... You're talking twenty thousand to a hundred grand to do some of this stuff. So that that question was actually from Christine Locker at Christine Locker on Twitter, and it was, "What are the common myths about gamification, and can you debunk them with practical, good examples?" So, are there other common myths aside aside from the technology one? 
I think the biggest myths, it's not a myth as much as a misunderstanding that there's a lot of skepticism about whether gamification is too trivial and fluffy for learning something like emergency medicine. You, you've got your doctor going to medical school and using games so that he can save you from a car wreck. There's a lot of uh, fear. And so that's probably the biggest issue right now, despite the fact that there are thousands of publications that have looked at efficacy. Uh, people are not aware of that research. Within the gamification community, um, other myths that exist, I think, have to do with the fact that um, I don't think there's many other myths I'd address. Um, there is um, some, um, I believe, um, mis there are best practices emerging. And so there are some bad practices. And one of these that I would be cautiously mentioning is the unskinnable uh, game system. So when you build a game, if it's only good for teaching one subject, like, like you know, microbiology, next time you want to teach it another subject, you've got to start building another game again. And games take, even a card game takes quite a bit of work. So uh, in the technology sphere, we really urge people to build a reskinnable game. That is a game that generally has a certain mechanic, but that you can insert any subject into it and the game will still hold up. Yeah, so, yeah, okay, that broader competencies or something in the, to use some L&D terminology, let's say. Yeah, you're teaching insects one week while you want to teach emergency medicine the next. A good game uh, design will let you simply switch topics by inputting new uh, data sets. And this is kind of where what's on trend right now with the most successful people in the business. There are a, a lot of pushback in gamification. It hit about 2011 to 2012. A huge dip happened both in publications and in use because these point badge leaderboard systems I talked about and what I would call relatively trivial game systems, which were based on answering quiz questions. And as you answered a quiz question, you would proceed in the game. Well, CLOs and other major learning directors got a hold of these and just found it was like fluff. And so it hit the, hit the industry very hard and people got away from it and now tend to see game as a bit gimmicky. So that's a bit of a myth. What they had were game designers who weren't very um, good at what they were doing and the early iterations have scared off some folks that we're trying to win back now. There's a question from Joe Cook at Lightbulb Joe on Twitter. And one of her, it was around, can we explore the difference between gamification, game mechanics, and where neither are needed? So maybe the, what you're talking about there, right, is, if I understand correctly, game mechanics. Yeah, exactly. So game mechanics are basically the rules of the game. And then the game design is taking those rules and building it into an experience. So the design might be your graphics, your sound, your playing cards, um, um, whether you're going to work in teams, and what you're going to do in the game is all part of the design. So the mechanics are the rules. The design is the implementation of the rules, in my case, for learning. Or Remember, gamification is used... Um, I've been in projects where we build games for managing addiction. So the idea that we use gamification just for learning, again, might be a myth, and um, it might blur the lines. But you can use gamification, as you could imagine, for getting more customers, customer loyalty programs, organizational development and for personal growth Jane McGonigal's work on using games to improve your health and well-being so here uh, mechanics and design uh, constantly interplay there's one other thing I'd mention here and that is that we have learning uh, activities so if you're talking about a serious educational game 
what we call a SEG, serious educational game. It's different than a SEG, a serious game. So what you've got to do in SEGs is you've got to align your learning objectives with the mechanics, but then not to align with design. So you have a, a triple layered cookie. At the center of the cookie, you've got your learning objectives and the, you know, the, like an Oreo. One part of the cookie is your mechanics and the other one is, is your actual design process. And are we, are we doing that because we don't want to distract or create new things to learn that the game creates? And I'll give you an example of what my thought process is. Um, when I studied, I came across a concept called TGFU, Teaching Games for Understanding, in the sports world. So I coach football, or it might be soccer for, for you across the pond. Um, and what's common is when we do training, lots of other coaches will say the players have to have two touches, where, where actually, when they play, in my mind, when they play a game, they never have two touches. What's, you know, if, they need, if they need three touches, use three. If they need four touches, use four. And w- what I find is that then the players create bad habits that they can't replicate in a game situation. And I wonder if how important that is in game mechanics, learning things you don't need to learn that distract from the main objectives. Did any of that make sense? Because I felt like I was waffling. Um, yes, I mean, there... What you want to do, I mean, preferably, is build a game in which the mechanics and the learning content and the simulation content um, are uh, well aligned. So that's a bit of an art, how you actually produce a game that integrates and rewards skill acquisition the proper way. So there's quite an art to good, um, serious game design. It's uh, not a trivial exercise. It takes a lot of practice. It takes a bit of a background in both instructional design and game design. And, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely an art. Um, but uh, we can, <clears throat> with our game designs that we're using with nursing students, etc., cetera, uh, we can have them uh, use game behaviors that then transfer directly into the workplace that day. Okay. One of Joe's other questions was, does gamification mean competition and... Um, Andre Markowski at Dave Rage on Twitter kind of said he thinks not. So there's a, there, there was a healthy debate happening on Twitter when I asked people for questions here. So that whole conversation of competition, gamification, is it, is it not? Can, can you explore that for us? Yes, I would agree, agree with Andre. She was a very good friend and colleague. Um, and, and other people like Monica Cornetti. I mean, there's some phenomenal people out there. Michael Van Unen, he is phenomenal. He's in the Netherlands. Um, we've pretty well knocked competition out of a lot of the games. Yeah, the con- it's, it's, it's more, um, there's a lot of things you can do in games. You can explore. Exploration is huge right now in terms of game sales and video game sales. Um, you can build. You can socially connect. Uh, you can create create creativity. Competition is a very small part of gamification, and many of us are simply eliminating it from our game designs now. Exploration, build, in the social element. It can't, social connectedness, if, achievement. It feels, yeah, it feels like Minecraft or Sims or something like that. Yes, yes. Or like World of Warcraft or Grand Theft Auto minus the shooting and killing. <laughs> Although shooting and killing... Amongst I'd, other I'd things. Like to comment on that. I'd like to comment on that too, on violence and gamification. Because there's kind of a, um, a, a nurse marm uh, attitude that all violence in games is bad and we mustn't have violence in games. And, and in fact, uh, fighting in games is an incredibly fantastic mechanic. Um, I mean, imagine that you're in the immune system and you're trying to learn how the immune system works 
and you have some uh, viruses you have to kill, but you've got to load up your ship with interferons and, and various T cells and B cells and antibodies, and then you have to go and kill those virus cells before they... I mean, that's such an exciting mechanic. It's gripping. And so, but, so that's not really competition. It's competition with yourself. Um, but exploration is really, really hot. Um, we produce some game outlines where you go into a jungle, and you don't know where you are. You just start the game in a jungle, and you don't even know what you're supposed to do. And then this hawk appears in video, and it flies and soars around you, saying, you have a mission to do. I want you to travel to the north to explore the mountains. Then I'll talk to you again. So now you're on a hexagonal uh, fog of war game board, moving your character, not knowing what's coming next. Um, this is terrific stuff. No competition, just purely exploring. And then lo and behold, you discover, um, uh, let's say, a city that's having a play. You have to research with a timer starts. And you've got one hour to hit your PDFs and your learning resources and save that town from a plague using the learning about the nature of transmission of a, of a viral outbreak in a hospital. And if you do it in the timer, it then rewards you. You might get a new set, a car. Uh, that little vehicle allows you to travel faster. You see where I'm going with this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The um the question that comes to my mind, and I I've got the cynical voice of someone like me listening, is a lot of my audience is learning and development. Where so the broader principles about game without competition, you meant again exploration, building, and the social connectivity. Where might we typically see that working well in a a large organization? Oh, well, imagine that you're trying to, um, to train someone in the area of, um, I mean, emergency medicine. Um, you know, we, we've got this virtual reality uh, system I was talking about before the broadcast at Humber College here, where you're, you, you start the game, you put on your goggles, your v, it's tethered VR, virtual reality, you're in a subway car, uh, there's just been a bomb explosion, there's bodies all over the place asking for help. You've got to, in the VR experience, do what's called triage. So you've got to decide who do you need to treat right now, who can wait for 10 minutes, and who can you wait and just get them to hospital. Well, you can go into that experience with a timer and say, okay, can you do this well in two minutes? Once you do it, can you beat your best time and now do it in a minute and a half? So you'd be training people to do a procedure in faster and faster times. And at the other end of it, You've got um, emergency medical techs who are really good at getting on a bob scene and deciding who to treat first. You know, it's, in, it's having these experiences um, use rehearsal. My big interest is in skill acquisition, which is in simulation gamification. Find whatever things, the way I have people gamify is this. Make a list of the things that people are having a hard time learning in your organization. Make that list. Also talk to your learners and have them make a list of things which frustrate them or annoy them or things they don't get enough practice at. Use that as your foundation. Now, build simulations of those events. They can be paper and pencil. You can just write down a simulation or you can use a video, 360 video, whatever you like. And then build those and then make a game of got to get better and better at those. So if I can tag all these people in two minutes, that's pretty good. Can you do it in a minute and a half? You got it done. This is called titrated challenge. And by titrating the challenge, we enter um, uh, Zent McCallie's idea, Mikel Zent McCallie's idea of flow, that you always want to be challenged, but not way above your level. Imagine you and I going to a high-level chess game. 
we would hate it and we'd quit because we're just getting smoked every match in five moves. So titrating challenge gives you a chance to rehearse your skills. And the reason I say this, Lloyd, is because all the evidence that we have suggests that what games do best in learning is skill acquisition. You rehearse what you want to do again and again and again. So when you get on the job, you're not a noob. You're able to function on the job site. Yeah, you know, you mentioned the um, virtual reality example and simulation. I think, I think a lot of people using virtual reality will be using it for simulation, and maybe not, I haven't seen much in terms of gamification. If I'm honest, not you know, not that my opinion may count for that that much. However, maybe there is a gap in understanding of how to apply gamification to those immersive environments. You've given us some excellent tips and examples there. Do you have some links and stuff that we can share with the audience after? Because I'm just thinking about how they can then take that and apply um, it. We're at the beginning of it, so I, I, I mean, I'd have to dig in the literature. Basically, we're in a new, that's a whole new kingdom, so there's not a good literature on it. It's terrible. There's nothing. Um, uh, we're doing some of the most original work, and we're not that good. There's somebody, uh, there's, no, there's not many people doing it. Quite frankly, VR is living in its world of mixed reality and immersive tech. Gamification is living in its world of video games and game learning. The two have the, the smallest of connection right now. Um, but what I would do is direct your readers uh, to, uh, well, I'll give them a link of a game we produced that we just won an award where we won two awards. This was a rather major award uh, in which you're not using VR, but you're using simulation gaming on an app. And now all you have to do in your mind is imagine, okay, we have the simulation and gaming app. Now we'd imagine building VR experiences. And Lloyd, the big problem with VR experiences is this. Uh, they take forever to build. We, we just recently built an electrical panel so that electricians can practice troubleshooting a panel. It took six weeks in a team of six artists. Do you think, um, you know you've got a storyline or articulate storyline where you can build base, you know, e-learning packages. Do you... Do you think in the future for VR applications and you know gamification principles there'll be a a cost-effective template, a bit like you can design a website yeah, on which absolutely something it like may that. be ten years from now. Uh, right now, asset production is holding all the whole VR field. Um, there's a new program that Ryerson University, my home base, is uh, launching this fall on VR and AR uh, building for mobiles. So, I mean, right now, where do you go to learn VR? Well, now you're going to be able to go to a university, and uh, this is a bit of a plug. <laughs> you're going to be able to go to a university and train in how to do VR and AR programming. But right now, you don't. You get a game programmer who knows Unity or Unreal, and you try to get them up to speed on VR, and you optimize. Um, so we're, we're getting better at it. But right now, the field is really primitive, I would say, really primitive. I'm going to come land back in reality and um, relay some of the questions from the audience here. Um, but thank you. So the next one is from Michael Osborne at Mike Ozzy on Twitter. He was well into the gamification chat, by the way. He's really into this and a bit of an expert himself. So he said, I think it would be worth highlighting that gamification is not making everything into a game. Um, we kind of discussed that. And Sam Watts on LinkedIn, he is another VR, he's a VR guru, this guy. I love this comment. Just remember, when we when people talk about gamification, and he said, like VR, it's nothing new. Microsoft were included Solitaire and Minesweeper in Windows 3.1 as a stealth, mechan stealth mechanism to teach people how to use the mouse input in a fun way. So there's two things I'm throwing at you there. What are your um, thoughts? Okay, dealing with the first one, um, this idea that um, 
gamification. See, Carl Cap, who is you know wrote one of the first texts on gaming and learning. He's a big leader in the field, um, and also Amy Jo Kim, who's a big leader in the field. She d- helped design The Sims and uh, Rock Band. Um, they're into this area they call design thinking. So um, I think that's legitimate. You can take some principles of gamification, like achievement um, and goal setting and um, uh, social engagement, etc., building. And you don't have to make a game. You just simply use the principles. And I think that that's legitimate. I have no interest in it at all because I like to harness the human imagination and to make them playful. But they would say that playful design is useful. Um, so I, I think that's legitimate. It's not my thing, but I think it's it, it makes sense. But I would like to see more people producing really good games so that you can play a game which has an element of fantasy and fun um, and lots of different things to do in the game. Um, so, yeah, that's a legitimate uh, point of view. Here's my concern. Uh, I've seen this game design thinking work, and I, I admire these people very much, but they're just taking positive psychology and calling it something else. I mean, we've got an entire field of education and engagement and positive psychology, which has taught us this stuff already for 30, 40 years. We know how to reward engagement and all this stuff. So I don't think this game design thinking personally is anything new and is that particularly helpful because of the fact that it already exists in the educational literature, in the psychology literature. It's just they're they're renaming what already is out there. Okay, you're very passionate there. Um, I kind of re- resonate with you. So, in the sense of design thinking being, you think about the human experience um, first, and that their interaction with something, and you're saying that would differ to some of the gamification principles. Yeah, we would apply. add user design, right? We would add user experience and user design. These are modern ideas, but um, they're not saying anything different than George Leonard said in 1967 in Big Sur. You know, did you have a reflection on Sam's comment about you know solitaire and Minesweeper? There's a game of built-in gamification. Do you have any other examples you can think of, um, like Sam's? Not really. Um, I, I see you. See so you build in game of. Yeah, I mean it's used in loyalty pr- programs, customer loyalty. I mean that's that's where you have a salient gamification of every time you shop at Tim Hortons here in Canada, you get Tim Hortons points. Or Shoppers Drug Mart we have in Canada. It's a chain of drug stores. And every time you shop, you get loyalty points, and eventually you get enough points. And the points are set at the levels that. You have to buy so much crap from the store that you finally get $20 of free merchandise, but you have to spend like 700 to get it. The loyalty points are embedded very much like solitaire. I was going to say, to your point, just on that again, there's a lot of psychology applied to that. So, you know, when you pick up your Costa card and someone gives you a free stamp, it's, it's invariably not a free stamp because they know if you feel like you're getting something for free, you're most likely going to want to, once you've started, you're going to continue to engage. Yeah, yeah, it's called amplification. You know, it's used in marketing for more engagement. And these are really powerful tactics. We've got a colleague at Ryerson, Lars Vekas, who his whole life has been designing, he's designed hundreds of games for hotel chains, etc. The problem with those games is they've got low stickiness for anything we want to use them for. They're great for learning how to use a mouse, but if you're trying to train someone and how to handle customer service complaints or, or how to uh, set up new bank accounts or something. Uh, you see, if a game is not really good, you're not going to play it. How about we provide an experience that's so much fun that you just can't wait to get home and play another round? And, oh, my goodness, you're learning as you do it. That's my goal, to tap into play 
I would make one comment. When we started this field, we didn't know that there was an area of the brain dedicated to play, and there is. And they learned about it through the weirdest experiments. They tickled rat. But if you have the right supersonic microphones and you slow down the recording, you can hear them giggling as you tickle them. Well, it turns out that tickling and laughter have specific regions of the brain. And it turns out that play is an essential biological mechanism by which little baby bears, little bear cubs, learn how to hunt, and forage, and avoid danger. Yeah, playing is part of our biology. So the, the thing that bothers me about all this design thinking and this embedded stuff and all the, is that you're getting rid of the only thing we that, that games can bring, really, which is motivation and engagement. That's something we like to play. Have you heard of Kahoot? Yeah, we use Kahoot all the time. I, I spoke with um, Jamie Brooker. I mean, what you're describing, they essentially built that as a principle. And they, 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 he's got some interesting stats, like on, on Christmas Day, there's a spike in usage because, you know, it's, to your point, it's engaging, it's bringing people together. And uh, what we're doing is taking Kahoot and we're, we're taking those mechanics and building them using much more imagination. See, here's the problem. A lot of learning and develop. I have a little war on instructional designers, and that sounds terrible because I've been one. The problem with instructional designers now is they follow the first thing they see moving, like goslings. So they're all into curating content. And the best instructional designers quit their jobs. They hate it. I've talked to a lot of them. They can't stand their jobs anymore because all they're doing is taking courses, shoving them into a template like Blackboard Learn all day long, every day. And instructional designers need to get up to speed on these engagement strategies and start bringing in gamification. And my worst opponents... Every time I walk into an organization, they introduce me to the instructional designer. I just go, here we go again. They fight me on gamification and reject it. They're the worst um, opponents of innovative learning that are in the field. And, and, and because they've all been trained that instructional design is following an algorithm of learning objectives, terminal competencies, curating content. And the good instructional designers, the ones that we deal with in Slack groups, are fed up with that, and like yourself, we're reaching for the you know the, the higher hanging fruit now. The the analogy I would have using to borrow the gamification uh, theme is that um, you know gamification, immersive tech, when it when it fits the right environment and it's you know actually against the business problem, I would say. Um, but when it's used in that context, it's like you know your PlayStation Four game and traditional e-learning. We're trying to excite people to go on their Mega Drive. That's how I view it. Yeah, I mean, e-learning is, remember, it's this slow, stumbling creature. It's not advanced at all in the past 20 years. I was using e-learning in the year 2000 to teach clinical trials, the whole certificate on how to manage clinical trials. And it's better, in fact, than what I see. We were doing webinars. We had curation of content. It's pathetic, the rate at which e-learning is advancing. It's not done anything in 20 years. Um, and Storyline and Camtasia, yeah, I mean, they're they're nice, but I mean, watching little animated guys with little gray beards yakking in cartoons, uh, it's driving us up the wall, a lot of us learning renegades. So what's happening with gamification and immersive tech is it's bringing some spice to that oatmeal because it's time for e-learning to grow. And I wish they would, um, you know, smell the coffee and say, look, uh, it's time to move on. And, and, and you know, I'm, my slams on e-learning are, I think, said in jest, and they're said with kindness. Uh, but uh, for God's sakes, if you're not part of the revolution, get out of the way and let us continue. 
Okay. Next question from Jane Harrison at Jane Harrison three on Twitter. Does gamification create a healthy competition rather than collaborative space? Is it inclusive or does it appeal to type? Could leaderboard disengage others? At Chain Daisy had something similar to say: Is gamification linked to gaming competitiveness? Competitiveness? Yeah, those are really great questions. Yeah, they're really great ones. We certainly know of one major organization we can't name here in Canada who uh, had terrible experiences with competition using gamification, and they stopped it because of it. People were almost became filled with bloodthirst uh, because you would win like a week in Mexico in a five-star hotel if you did better at sales and other things like that. So people were cheating, they were uh, disrupting, uh, they did anything to, to win. And it just, it got, people weren't learning anymore, they were just killing each other to get to Mexico. So yeah, um, I, I have huge issues with competition and winning. I think it's a very toxic way to produce a game. Um, using, uh, you know, Richard Bartle's classic classification of the four gamer types, of explorers, socializers, achievers, and, and sharks. Uh, games, uh, there's different types of people that play games. And if all your games are built around sharks, people that want to win, you're going to disengage, uh, you know, all these people that are just in a game. I like to play games to explore. I've always hated competition, probably because as a kid, I never got picked for baseball or, you know, and the kids were yelling at each other and fighting whoever got a suck. So I think I agree with your the, those comments. If you build games around competition, um, I think you're really promoting some of the worst parts of human nature. However, if you have an option that within the game you can compete, now we're talking. But let's not compete on learning. If we're talking competition, let's fight. Let's let's really have a way to go head to head and have teams, uh, you know, compete to do meaningful things or to attack each other, which gets at something I think we were talking about before the interview of. Um, of, of competition and fighting in games, using violence and combat in games. These can be really powerful mechanisms. Then those people who like competition will be really highly engaged. Okay. The, and thank you. The next question is from Matt Ash. Yeah. So Matt said outside of work, gamification is hugely successful. How can we be sympathetic to different motivations in the real-world workplace, including apathy and mandated content, to recreate that success? So I think what Matt's saying is, you know, he might play Gran Turismo or Grand Theft Auto and rip up LA, but actually, when he comes back to stuff he has to do with gamification, how it's could got that a, work? it's a multi-layer question. It's a big one and it's a good one. So I'm going to try to make a long story short, which is not my forte here, as you can tell. I make short stories long. <laughs> That's what I get paid to do. Uh, um, I think in terms of it, one thing we've learned with our work at Baycrest over the years, and I've worked, um, my first games were for nursing and midwifery degree students back in 2000, actually 1996. Um, you make them play. There's the idea that if it's games, it has to be, oh, we love our games. No, you get in there and play, because we never asked them permission before we lectured at them for three hours, did we? We never, but suddenly when it comes to games, we have to get all warm and fuzzy and permission asking. Make them play the game, and they will see once they're playing the game that it has its treasures. And there's a very good study that addresses this that was done by Barata et al., um, and that was done a few years ago. It was a three-year study on gamification and learning. And so she tracked gamification over a three-year period. It's a great paper. 
And she found that there were six different types that emerged in the games. So you had the keeners that loved the game and did everything you could. Then you had people that kind of hated the game but did it. Then you had people that were really excited at first, but after the first year, they said enough already with the game. There were differentiations. So I think you have to understand when you launch these things, you're launching to a heterogeneous population. Some people are going to despise it no matter what you do. In our studies at Ryerson University, we've conducted over the past four years, we found that about 80% of students prefer it as a form of learning. But it doesn't mean that everyone loves it. They just prefer it. You have to, when you design the game, listen to your users, say, what do you like about this? What do you not like about it? Improve it on the basis of that and be responsive uh, and understand that not everyone is going to love it, but it, it will. What we've learned is that even though you don't like playing the game, even though you, if you play it, you still learn. So you can hate the game, but if you play it, you still learn. And these distinctions are pretty crazy. They're like distinction between engagement and, um, and, 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 and hedonics. You can be very engaged in a horror movie. Suppose you don't like horror movies, and you watch a scene where someone is getting something terrible done to them, you know, these Freddy-type movies. While you're watching Freddy with his chainsaw, you're engaged. You're not enjoying it, but you're still engaged. So separating terms like enjoyment and engagement is important. They're separate processes. That's a really good point. I, I pensively scratched my chin. Me as well. Um, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so you kind of answered, the next question was from Jill Katz on LinkedIn, and she was talking about employee performance engagement using gamification. I think you've just answered that one as well. Um, so the next question from the Games for Health Europe at GFHEU on Twitter, they say serious games are still too often equated with bad games. This does, not see, this does seem to indicate that there is still a lot of work left to do quality-wise for the serious games industry. I'll add interject. Where does, what, you know, when does a game become serious? I love that question and comment. I mean, we, I am best friends with this person. Um, you have to kind of make some decisions. A bad game no one will play. You have to build a good game. And the question of what a good game is, is someone who plays a lot of different games themselves. I would say if you're in serious games and you don't play a game a lot, play games a lot, then get out of the field. And there's many people in the field that don't play games. There's people that I've taught gamification to that they went along with the project, but I would put on World of Warcraft and after three minutes they're bored and say, okay, I've seen enough, I get the idea. No, you don't get the idea. I want you to level up a warlock to level 60 and play the game and see what classes and what dungeons are like. And you've got to understand it. So people without a passion for gaming, getting into the field because it's on trend, are going to kill it. And But it raises a bigger question, that, and that is, what is a game designer? What is a serious game? Yeah, I was going to say, what it's is a serious game? It's a big game? question. Um, we're, we're offering courses in this now. We're starting to teach it. Um, there's two schools of thought. One is that you're already a game designer, and then you um, work with uh, instructional designers or industry leads to use your game design skills to deploy them in this context. The other point of view is that you should be someone like an instructional, like for serious educational games, you would be an instructional designer, so you know about learning, and then you would add game design to your repertoire. Um, there's a lot of people that lack the imagination to build good games. 
I have a good imagination and I'm not a great game designer. I'm an okay one. I do it. Okay. We win awards. So I'm doing something right. But there's people out there that smoke me on game design. I mean, there's so much better off. Reiner Nija, he's a genius. He's designed some amazing board games. I'm never nowhere near it. But I have the imagination. When I design a game, Lloyd, to give you a sense, is the unconscious mind works. I go out on long walks in the park. And over a week or two or three or sometimes a month, finally, I'll get the core mechanic and I'll say, that's it. It's like a eureka moment. That's what we'll do. So it's a deep process of integrating design, mathematics, fantasy. Um, and what I mean by design is you have to play a lot of games to know what's out there. I hope that gets at it a little bit. So you gotta, you gotta have a good imagination. You gotta really get into the fantasy. And I've, I've met some, some people I've worked with who are doctors or social workers, and they've designed amazing games. They've never designed a game before in their life, but they have good imaginations. So bang, bang, in a couple of hours, they produce this thing that's making my jaw drop. If, if you're li- final question before we dive into the quickfire questions then, imagine you're listening to this and you're, I don't know, you're a learning and development consultant and you've got a project you need, you wanna, you're inspired. Where would you say, what are the one or two things to start with the basics of gamification? What advice could you offer? Assuming they have no money or no budget. Well, as card-based well. games and board games. So what they're going to do first is they're going to find a board game cafe. If they don't have one, God help them, they're in trouble. You've got to play a lot of board games. You've got to go to a board game cafe. We've got them. They're called Snakes and Lattes here in Canada. Some place that sells board games. And the guru is the guy that runs the game cafe. So they know the rules to all these games. So when you go in, you pay your 10 bucks. You sit down with a pint with some mates and you want to play a game. They explain in five minutes the rules. So these people know all the games. So I'll bring faculty members in. We'll sit down. And they'd love to have something different to do. They'll sit down and say, well, here's one game here. You know, uh, this is this one. And this is this one. And this is this one. So you want to get an idea of how games are played. The first thing you got to do is you got to know something about games. And then once you understand how games are played, then you ask yourself, if I was using this game that I'm playing now for learning or organizational development or treating addictions, whatever I'm going, how would I apply it? And if you can do that, you're on your way. And that's the best way to do it. The only way to use gamification and learn how to do it is you've got to play a lot of games. Okay, thank you. Quick fire questions then. Um, what sources or resources are you learning from right now? Um, I read the literature. I'm, I'm lucky in that I get paid to read literature. So I uh, would suggest they go to Google Scholar and put the search options on everything since 2017. Why 2017? Yeah, I wouldn't look much earlier than that um, to get going. I mean, there's a lot of good literature, but all the good stuff is, you know, I like to stay current. And then I would do a search in Google to say uh, uh, evidence for gamification, uh, you know, gamification research, gamification and engagement, all these things. So I'm, I'm, my, uh, my, I'm getting all my help from reading the research literature. We couldn't do that 10 years ago because there wasn't any. But now there's thousands of papers in the field. And then there's the whole literature on video games. Um, Like, do you know that video games increase hippocampal density in the brain? So when you play video games, your, your your brain structure changes. There's a release of oxytocin, the release of, uh, of uh, serotonin, release of, um, of um, stress hormones, neurotensin. So I think that everyone needs to um, maybe follow that example a little bit of staying current with the literature. I've seen a lot of literature in the, in the press about addiction. 
um, in adolescence to uh, games at the moment. You know, with Fortnite and some other games and stuff like that, for what it's worth. But, but uh, the, I mean, it's it's superficial. There's also a website called BoardGameGeeks.com, and there's thousands of members. And you, you can just read the threads, read the rules. You can get a real education on game design and game ideas from BoardGameGeeks.com. Um, as far as thought leaders and industry leaders in the field, um, there are some good people out there, but they don't consistently produce any uh, content without charging you for it and, uh, you know, having you take their program. UK Chow, right? He's one of the top leaders. He has the Octalysis framework. Andrzej Marzowski's uh, blog. Um, Monica Cornetti's Sententia Gaming Concept. These are uh, what they call the top gamification gurus. There's a top 100 list of gamification gurus. And if you start following their blogs, um, you though they, they give you a, a fantastic... I mentioned uh, Mikhail Van Yunen out of the Netherlands. <clears throat> and he is doing phenomenal stuff with Lego and escape rooms. And um, he's done this app where you go to this um, park... Um, this national park and, and you're given a laptop when you come into the park and then it does augmented reality explanations of the stuff you're looking at the trees. So, I mean, Michelle is doing, so I would say if you find that um, top 100 uh, gamification leaderboard, you Google it a bit, there's what's called the gamification hub on, um, on Facebook. It's called the gamification hub. You get on there and start talking to people. Um, so now you're reading the literature to get the science work and to get the authority already on it, but you're also following the game gurus so that you can see what people are doing to actually make a living at this, um, you know, in the private sector. Okay. If you, out of all those people you mentioned, if people could follow one of those or anyone on game, in gamification on social media, who would that one person be? I, I, I wouldn't be able to find one person. I think Andres Markzowski is consistent in his blog posts. Uh, he's consistent. Michelle is, um, is more of a practitioner, uh, and I don't know about his post, but I would say he'd be good to follow. Um, for game design... He, he had a question earlier, Sorry? didn't he? He was one of the questions I mentioned earlier. Yeah, um, um, I would also... Yeah, um, I would follow Amy Jo Kim and Carl Cap on game design thinking. I, I would say those are the places to go. I would I'd shamelessly plug that if you go to uh, YouTube and uh, you search under Humber CTL uh, or you on LinkedIn follow, we do a, a weekly news magazine, um, a, a YouTube uh, week news magazine, where each week I present the, and summarize the findings from the research literature on gamification and mixed reality. Um, nobody's doing what I'm doing. I, people should start doing it. I would, there should be YouTube videos that come out every week where you kind of catch up on the news. And surprisingly, people really aren't doing that. Monica Cornetti has a great archive, a great archive of, um, of interviews such as this with gamification leaders. So she is somebody great uh, to follow as well. Okay. If you could change one thing about your industry, what would it be? Uh, more focus on high-quality um, game design. What my area is now, Lloyd, is open world design. Everything I'm doing is focused on that direction. Now, that's not what I do. We built a card game last week for interprofessional collaboration. 
But open world is the way of the future in gamification. The open world is when you, you get into an open environment, and it can be done with cards and board games, like Dungeons and Dragons. That was open world. Uh, it was exciting, but you were using your imagination. So you don't need technology to do open world. But Grand Theft Auto and World of Warcraft, games like that, um, you know, um, EverQuest, you're, you're in a world, and there's a, what are called a conglomerate of player satisfaction activities. So there's tons of things to do in that world. So you're not in a scripted little path where you do this, you do that. You just kind of explore the world and you learn. So I would like people to move in that direction. And um, we're using now on our new technologies a mixture of laser scanning. So for your listeners that don't know that field, with a laser scan, you can, in one week, scan a building. And you see the inside in every room. You have a replica of the building. And then you can walk through that building using point cloud technology you can also build these worlds in Unreal or Unity. And so you build these virtual worlds, and they're, game, they're called game worlds. And that's the future. I've talked to a lot of leaders in the industry. We're going to build worlds that you immerse in. And in that immersive game world, you can live, it's like second life. You live a different reality. You have an avatar, and that's built into your learning or what you organize, whatever you like. And that is so good because it hits explorers and socializers and achievers, competitors. It's, uh, it's just uh, fantastic stuff, very engaging. Okay, thank you. If people want to know more, you've mentioned a few, a few uh, links. I, I'd recommend the YouTube um, channel. I really enjoy catching up with it. But how could people get in touch um, with you? They can just reach me at uh, dchandros at ryerson.ca, R-Y-E-R-S-O-N.ca. That's the university I'm based at. Uh, so just taught, taught me an email. And um, I'm happy to work with anyone and help anyone on the road. Cool. And you, you've got LinkedIn That's presence right. as well, you, you can mentioned. check me out at LinkedIn. Just my name, David Chandros. Yeah. Okay. David, it's been an absolute pleasure. I've learned loads and had lots of fun. So thank Lloyd, you. Lloyd, it's been a pleasure as well. Thank you for doing this for the, the cause. Be for Ventana. <laughs> Thank you, David, for your time. As I said at the start, that was such a fun conversation to have, and I've learned so much. I hope you guys enjoyed the show as well, and I, I really appreciate you taking the time to listen to this. There are so many other podcasts, and you've you picked this particular one, so thank you. If, um, if you enjoyed the show today, I'd really appreciate if you can share the love. Please share on your social networks, or please feel free to rate the show on the iTunes store. Thanks for your time and I'll catch you guys on the next episode.